Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 10, Yayati in Three Seasons. In our last episode, we spent some time under the hood of our monster truck, examining its driving forces. And we concluded that our hero's journey is not as simple as they're just jumping in and starting the engine. Rather, we noticed, our motors actually ringed. It comes with pre-programmed destinations such that no matter what route we drive, we'll always arrive at the same place. But pushing that unsettling thought aside, today we're going to start with the Bharata story proper, with the saga of King Yayati. Some of you will know the story through the dramas of the brilliant Girish Karnan, while others will be saying, King who? So, let's introduce Yayati, who is one of the remote granddaddies of the Bharata clan. We care about Yayati for several reasons. First, he's a Bharata elder, and given that we're studying the great Bharata clan, that seems pertinent. Second, he's also billed as the remote ancestor of the major Arya lineages found in the Rigveda. If you care about pseudo-historical trivia, that's pretty interesting, though it's going to set off our problematic terminology alarm. Third, it's a story about universal concerns, the enigma of death, the power dynamics between parents and children, the young and the old, lovers and users, the rich and the poor. Most importantly, it's a delectably complex tale and very funny to boot. Briefly, if Yayati were a Netflix series, its plot might comprise three seasons. Season 1 would begin as every good story begins with the Devas and the Asuras. In episode 1, the Devas would be at fervid war council over a new threat to the heavens. The Asuras have evolved a technique for reviving the dead. Oh no, whatever shall we do? This is a catastrophe. After anxious deliberation, they evolve a strategy. The Deva priest Brahaspati will dispatch his handsome young son Kacha to the Asura priest Shukra. Let's give both priests a one on our must remember scale while poor handsome Kacha is going to get written out of the script after the first season. So, Kacha is dispatched to the Asura priest to master the Sanjeevani mantra or the secret to restoring life. He's been properly instructed that he should win the Asura priest's favour by ingratiating himself to Shukra's beloved daughter, Devyani. Once he's mastered the mantra of resurrection, he'll bring it back to the gods and all will be well. Now I know what you're thinking. Aren't the gods already immortal? Because we had front row seats to the churning of the oceans and we distinctly recall. Vishnu had assumed the form of that beautiful seductress dancing so enticingly as to cause havoc among the Asuras, distracting them just long enough for the gods to swipe the Amrit. 
one glug of that and they're immortal, so why are they worried about death? But let's not get hung up on details. The Asuras have a thing and the gods must get it. Episode 2 finds our boy Kacha in position, all teen boy cuteness, serving the guru by day and romancing the guru's daughter by night. They go to the movies and rock concerts, amble in the meadows, frolic in the streams. 500 years pass. Really, you're saying 500 years? And you have a point. That would take a toll on even the most dewy complexion. But it's a verifiable historical fact that ancient peoples worked with 500-year plans, as we witnessed with Vinita's 500 years of slavery just a short time ago. So, 500 years pass before the Asuras catch on to Kacha's true identity, and they resolve to kill him. More precisely, they do kill him, except Devyani goes crying to her father, saying, But daddy, he's so cute and I love him. Do something. Shukra cannot deny his daughter anything, so he revives Kacha using the magic mantra. But the Asuras just kill him again. And this happens a few times until the Asuras devise a foolproof plan. This time, they kill Kacha, grind his body into dust, mix it into the Guru's drink at dinner, and watch the Guru guzzle down his favourite disciple with a side of dal and rice. Drama follows. The Guru searches for his disciple, calling high and low. Kacha responds faintly from his locus inside the Guru's stomach. But now we have a problem. He can, fortunately, still be restored to life thanks to the magic mantra, but only at the cost of the Guru's life. This is a quandary. Hasty conference ensues between Guru and digested disciple. And then a solution. The Guru will teach Kacha the prized Sanjeevani mantra while he's still in utero, and when the Guru dies in the process of resurrecting Kacha, the youth will in turn restore the Guru to life. Let's pause here a moment to reflect upon what a deliciously tense and irony-filled moment this is. Kacha, the emissary of the gods, now holds the Asura priest's life in his hands. This is better than the god's best hopes. Not only has Kacha mastered the mantra, but he's also perfectly positioned to eliminate the only other person who knows it, the Asura priest himself, who in this cycle is the biggest threat to the gods. But Kacha desists and Shukra is reborn. This is but the prelude to the Yayati story, but its medley of themes illustrates many of the stock elements of Hindu myth-making. The dirty tricks of the gods, the bumbling of the asuras, love, betrayal, sacrifice, deceit. And we have comic relief, giving a whole new meaning to having your student for dinner. All these are used to ponder universal themes, how giving life is a deadly and danger-fraught enterprise, how the young holds power over the old, 
not to mention the consuming existential quest for the secret of overcoming death. Everybody, everywhere, is searching for the Sanjeevani Mantra. But season one is drawing to a close and we have some loose ends to tie up. Having mastered the mantra, Kacha promptly dumps Devyani. But I thought you loved me, she says tearfully. Sorry, says Kacha. You see, your dad just gave birth to me. So now you're my sister. How can I possibly marry my sister? Devyani's incredulous. You used me, she says. I curse you. The knowledge for which you abused my love will never work for you. That's just fine, he retorts. I'll teach it to someone else. But because you cursed me, I curse you. You will never marry a Brahmin. And with that stinging riposte, he shoots off to the heavens and credits roll on season one. While we're waiting for season two to wrap production, we have some time to ponder. What is this bizarre curse that Devyani won't marry a Brahmin? So what, you might be saying? There are lots of fish in the pond. Maybe she'd prefer an action hero. But this brings us to a matter very dear to our text, which is class relationships or varnas. We've already discussed two of these, the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, but let's expand those to four, each doing different kinds of work. Brahmins do intellectual and ritual work, Kshatriyas keep people in line or kill them as per need, Vaishyas grow the food and run the economy, and Shudras are consigned to service. So, four broad occupational groups, but they're not exactly equal. There's a very clear hierarchy, and I'm going to give you three guesses as to who's on top. Is it the woman sweeping the floor and washing your dirty laundry? No. Is it the guy toiling in the fields so you can have food on your table? No. Is it the guy with the Glock 22, making sure you don't step out of line? Good guess, but no. It's the guy writing the books, the one who can control the world through ritual power and has a direct pipeline to the gods. The Brahmins are at the top, Kshatriyas next, Vaishyas third, and Shudras are at the bottom. At least, that's how our text would like it. Hindu texts are very concerned about ordering society and basically want all of us to just drive in our own lanes. Brahmins should marry Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, Vaishyas, and so on. Now, if you're a man, we can make some exceptions for you, but women really mustn't marry down. Think about it. If you're the queen of entirely fictional land, Pingland, and you want to ensure the purity of your aristocratic bloodline, you really want to watch your daughters so they aren't out there boinking plebes. Because the riffraff just drags the whole family down, you know? Now, we have a lot of time to talk about this, but for now, just keep your eyes on your own lane, please, and no flirting across the way with that cute boy in the aviator shades. Season 2 begins with Devyani and a princess named Sarmishta. Sarmishta is the daughter of King Vrishaparvan, who is the patron of Devyani's father, Shukra. Remember Shukra? 
He's the Asura priest who has some pretty nifty skills that are useful to the king. To wit, thanks to his magic mantra, the king's army is now an endlessly renewable resource. But we're interested in the girls who spend a lot of time together doing teenage girl things. But one day they get into an argument. They're at the local pond, splashing about in the water, and their clothes get mixed up. Hey, that's my skirt, says Devyani. Give it back. Whereupon Sir Mishta laughs. Oh, please be serious, she says. This is a Gucci skirt, pre-fall 2020 season limited edition with monogrammed lining, $1,800. You think you can afford this? Your dad's just a beggar. Your bargain basement rag is over there. And she flings the other skirt at Divyani. How dare you, says Divyani. You can't insult my father. He's a very important priest. Your father would be dead without him. Says the daughter of a beggar, taunts Sarmishta. Your father lives on the arms doled out by my father. And you know what? Keep my skirt. I can afford plenty more. Things get heated. Devyani, the priest's daughter, demands an apology. Sarmishta, the king's daughter, says, bite me. Unfriending each other isn't an option, so the princess does the next obvious thing. She pushes the Brahmin girl into a dry well and leaves her to die. And then she heads home. Devyani wails and sobs, pleading for help, but Sarmishta's long gone. Fortunately, enter our hero, King Yayati, a dashing young man out with his retinue hunting in the forest. He hears Devyani's plaintive cries and he locates her, and extending his right hand, he draws her out of the well. And Devyani falls headlong in love. But first, she has some business to clear up. Getting home, she tells her father the whole traumatic story in colourful detail. But Shukra just shrugs and tries to talk her down. Devyani, however, refuses to let it go. How can you be so calm, she demands. She must pay for insulting you. She called you a sycophant and a beggar. Poetic recompense will be that Sarmishta will now spend her life as a slave of the beggar. I want her as my slave, she says. Unable to calm his daughter, Shukra sighs and goes to complain to the king. Look, he says, your daughter has hurt mine and I cannot abide my daughter's distress. Divyani is set on wanting Sarmishta as her slave and that's how it must be. And Shukra threatens to leave the king unless he yields his hot-headed daughter to Devyani as a slave. And on that promising note, let's leave it there for today. But before we go, let's get some inkling as to why these women matter to us. Sarmishta will go on to become one of the great-great-great-great-grandmothers of the Bharata clan, while Devyani will be the mother of other lineages of great interest to us. So let's continue that discussion with part two of Yayati's story if you'll join me for the next episode of the Mahabharata. Music